Move Forward Radio is brought to you by ChoosePT.com, the official consumer information website of the American Physical Therapy Association. Find a physical therapist near you at ChoosePT.com. Welcome to Move Forward Radio. I'm Eric Reese. Did you know that a baby can have a stroke before it's born? Emma Fitzsimmons didn't, until she noticed that her four-month-old son was displaying atypical behaviors. A web search suggested and an MRI confirmed that he'd experienced what's called a perinatal ischemic stroke. It's not as rare as you might think, but neither is it necessarily dire. The key is obtaining quick, multidisciplinary, and comprehensive health care services, like those provided by the National Early Intervention Program, which helps children under three who have developmental delays and disabilities. Fitzsimmons, who is City Hall Bureau Chief for the New York Times, made her own news earlier this year when she wrote a commentary for the paper's parenting section that bore the headline, How Early Intervention Changed My Son's Life. She not only described the program's positive impact on her son, but she shared what she thinks all parents should know about perinatal stroke, early intervention services, and how to learn more about them. It bears noting that in New York, where Emma and her husband live, the program is free to qualifying families. In this episode of Move Forward Radio, Emma and one of her son's physical therapists, Patricia Torres, expand on the information provided in the New York Times article. Emma also offers her advice on how best to navigate the twists and turns of the healthcare bureaucracy in order to help infants who've had a stroke get the help they need. Here's our conversation with Emma and Patricia. So Emma, you are the City Hall Bureau Chief at the New York Times, but in January, you placed yourself in a, in a rather unaccustomed role as a columnist in the newspaper, uh, authoring a piece for the Times parenting section that carried the headline, How Early Intervention Changed My Son's Life. Um, it's, it's a powerful and uh, illuminating piece. It's definitely uh, a worthwhile read for anyone listening to this podcast. But, uh, but we're here today to dig a little bit further into your family's story and your experiences that, that you've had and, and how they might help current and future parents in our audience. So first of all, you wrote the, in the piece that you'd had a mostly uneventful pregnancy and that nothing had seemed to miss initially in your son's development. So, so I want to ask you first, when did you give birth? When did you notice something that gave you pause? And, and what was it that you noticed? Yeah, so my son was born in October 2017, and he was doing great when he was born, and we didn't notice any problems, but then around four months old, we noticed that he was preferring his right hand, and I think I'd even commented to my husband, oh, he must just be a righty, you know, he must just be right-handed. When you would hand him a toy or something, he would always pick it up with the right hand, and then over time, I noticed, you know, that his left hand was fisted, sort of held at his side in a fist, and um, once I sort of recognized I think it's really important for people to pay attention to their mother's intuition or their father's intuition because I just felt like something was off. And um, I remember one night I just stayed up for hours Googling, you know, right hand preference um, in an infant. And the Internet said you really shouldn't have a preference at that age, not until they're older. And so I uh, sort of went down the rabbit hole and ended up at a really great website called Chasa. It's a group um, for children who suffered from strokes. And I watched one of the videos of one of their children, um, and it just rang true to me. And I remember crying and and realizing that this might be something we would be facing. And, and so the next step was to talk to our pediatrician about it. Say the name of that website again, just so people know what it, what it is. 
CHASA, C-H-A-S-A, and it stands for the Children's Association, something along the lines of Children and Stroke Association. Um, And it's a really great nonprofit group. They have a Facebook group as well. I remember watching a YouTube video of theirs, and the story sort of gave me a preview of what was to come in terms of the importance of physical therapy and occupational therapy. Did you feel like once you saw that, that you pretty pretty well had nailed or at least had a good idea what your son's issue was? Well, I think early on, you know, my husband told me not to worry too much, and he said, you know, you may just be over-worrying. I think in those early months as a parent, there's a lot of things you worry about, right? Sure. Um, So I wasn't sure if I was sort of overreacting, but I'm very grateful that when we went to our pediatrician and we told her about our concerns, she believed us, she noticed the same thing in person, and she immediately sent us to a neurologist. So when she when she confirmed my fears, you know, and, and, and I've heard stories from other parents that say, oh, our pediatrician said they're so young, let's wait and see, you know, how they develop over time, you're just over worrying. And so I'm glad she took our concerns seriously. And I'm glad mm-hmm. we live in New York City, where we have a really good neurologist that we could see immediately. The pediatrician referred you to a neurologist. And uh, what happened next? So she she noticed the same thing we noticed in terms of having a right hand preference, Um, and she was concerned. Um, She said it it was possible that he had had a stroke in utero, and from there, we ended up deciding to do an EEG, um, which is a brain scan, and after that, the neurologist and the pediatrician said, let's go ahead and do an MRI and um, find out once and for all um, whether your son had brain damage, whether he had a stroke, and um, whether it could even be something more serious, like a brain tumor or something. So um, it, it was hard to make a decision to do an MRI because our son was very young and you have to um, put the baby under. But it ended up being a really good decision for us because it confirmed that he had a stroke. Had you had any idea at that time that a child in utero could have a stroke? No. And again, I had a mostly healthy pregnancy and I had no reason to believe anything was wrong. Um, and so it was very shocking. And we started reading a lot more about it. Um, and I still, you know, now we've met so many other families that have gone through something similar. And a lot of the stories are the same. They, they had never heard of it before. They had no pre-existing conditions. And this, this just happened to them and that sort of changed their life forever. Well, let me jump ahead a little bit. I, I want to talk now to uh, to Patricia Torres, who's uh, who's been your son's PT for some time, and, and we'll talk more about how she came into the picture later. But Patricia, I want to ask you, uh, given your expertise as a physical therapist, can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about what is called perinatal ischemic stroke, which, as Emma noted in that New York Times piece, affects as many as one in every 2,300 babies. What What's known about what causes it, and what are its potential implications, depending on its severity? Perinatal ischemic uh, stroke is not as rare as people might think. It could happen between 22 weeks and a one-month-old baby, and it has different causes. Sometimes there's really nobody knows why it happened, uh, but there's a bunch of variables that could cause that, that we can can know, like uh, congenital heart disease, infection, placenta disorders, blood clot disorders, and trauma during the birth that cause asphyxia, you know, the lack of oxygen in, in the brain. And that is what causes the damage in the brain. What we can expect when that when an incident like this happens is uh, cerebral palsy. And cerebral palsy is uh, a condition of uh, a brain damage at birth that could cause uh, physical disabilities as the baby develops. So what, what are some of the other potential implications for the, for the child? It depends on where the stroke is and how big the stroke is. 
Mm-hmm. Where you, you, as the baby develops, you're going to see uh, the physical in, implications of, of the stroke. So the baby, if, they, if the stroke was large enough, uh, the babies could have more gross motor issues, fine motor issues, speech delays, and uh, cognitive delays. Uh, so it all depends on where and, and how big the stroke is. So, Emma, uh, getting back to your family story, the, the main thrust of your new p- newspaper essay was about how you learned of this wonderfully helpful program called Early Intervention that, as you, as you said, in the headline, as it said in the headline, changed your son's life in very positive ways. Uh, you had noted in the piece, though, that uh, his introduction to Early Intervention didn't happen right away. And in the meantime, you and your husband were taking your son to a local hospital for therapy on a weekly basis, but that quickly got very expensive, and in any event, it wasn't really meeting your son's needs. So can you talk a little bit about that period before early intervention and what was going on? Yeah, so the neurologist recommended us to early intervention, and they sent out a couple of different evaluators to our home to assess my son in person, and they said that his condition seemed mild and that he didn't have really noticeable strong delays at this point, and so they denied him for early intervention. And at the time, I actually remember feeling relieved because I thought, oh, um, whatever's happening is mild and it's not a serious concern or else they would have approved him for it. Mm-hmm. Um, but now in retrospect, I really wish they would have approved him from immediately. Um, once we had the MRI results in our hands, we went back to EI and said he needs these services and then they were approved. But early on they said he wasn't missing that many milestones and that whatever was happening seemed too mild to qualify for services. So so for a time, you were bringing him in for, for weekly therapy, is that right? Yeah, we would take him to the hospital, and we had a wonderful therapist there, but she only saw him once a week, and um, we knew he needed more. And so once we qualified for early intervention shortly before his first birthday, that's when he started seeing Patricia and our other wonderful therapist, Lauren, um, and eventually started, you know, now he received nine therapy sessions a week. Well, and I guess in that period before early intervention, it, it, it got expensive rather quickly as well, huh? Yeah, we, we could afford it, honestly. It was $40 um, per session, but I could understand how that would be a struggle for a lot of families, and our insurance only covered one session a week, and we knew he needed more. And honestly, mm-hmm. the logistics was one of the hardest parts. I would go into um, my job at the New York Times late uh, once a week, or my husband would, and uh, we attended the session so we could pick up on tips, but it, it was very time-consuming. And early intervention, one of the best parts is they come to us on our schedule, and um, make it really easy for the therapy to happen. So I want to ask you, um, Emma, a little bit about early intervention, sort of what it is and what the evaluation process was, was like. Once we recognized that he needed services through early intervention, we started seeing the therapist several times a week, and I was blown away by how attentive they were, how cheerful they were. They get down on the floor with him, they play with him, Patricia helped him learn to walk, and it was just it was it was really beautiful to see how caring they were towards my son and to see all the little things they could teach us to do with him to get him to use his left arm, to get him to use his legs, to get him to develop better speech patterns and better chewing patterns and things we just never would know on our own. And we should say, I guess, that this is this is a national program, a government program, and it brings in all different kinds of healthcare disciplines, correct? Yes, and children can receive speech, occupational therapy, physical therapy, and special education to help, you know, stimulate their learning. 
and um, in New York State, where we live, it, it's a really generous program if you can qualify um, and if you can prove that your child needs services. And um, again, we, we receive nine sessions now a week, uh, which is a lot, and we're really grateful for that, and, it, and it's free for us. And how long has he been getting nine sessions a week? It's changed a little over time. You can sort of add sessions or subtract sessions based on his needs, but um, he's been receiving um, speech therapy for several months now, and that's been really beneficial. Um, but he's been seeing Patricia and Lauren, our OT, um, two or three times a week for over a year now. So, Patricia, can you talk a little bit about uh, uh, the, the types of pediatric conditions that early intervention uh, is meant to serve and why intervening early in the child's life and development is so important? Sure. We see all kinds of uh, diagnoses from premature babies to Down syndrome and other more complex syndromes. Uh, we see babies with uh, they're not developing as they should, it's really not a real, a real diagnosis, but they're behind their peers. So uh, basically anything that, can, that a baby can is, is diagnosed, diagnosed with. Uh, this could be prematurity, could be any kind of syndrome, could be cerebral palsy, any kind of, any, any kind of condition uh, we are able to treat, and it would be crucial if we can treat them as soon as possible because uh, as they say, a baby, when, when a baby is born, his brain is a blank canvas where we can teach how to use his body properly at the beginning. So it's, it's essential for them to start moving right away, to, to feel uh, different experiences of movement, uh, rolling, uh, belly time, uh, all these experiences that uh, the input that the, the sensory system goes, uh, provides is is why we the most important thing to start early on so the brain can start uh, interacting with with his environment and can produce uh, appropriate motor responses so the longer we wait the less interaction with with the environment and the more uh, the the more likely to develop uh compensations which in the long run are gonna decrease the functional mobility of the child. That that's a good point. If you pick up uh, if you pick up bad habits early, those those can persist. So so take advantage of that neuroplasticity of the brain early on. Exactly. Unfortunately, sometimes in early intervention, sometimes they say, "No, oh, the baby's too small. Why don't we wait? We're only going to give him one time a week." And in my opinion, that is really that's really sad because that is where we need to be. Uh, working and, and moving and, and, and treating the baby so they don't develop these compensations and they don't they learn how to how to move themselves with these fluid controlled movements instead of compensations. So is it the case that it's almost never too early? It's never too early. The earlier the better. When they have issues sometimes they, they're retracted, they they they're too weak so um the earlier we get there, they, they, is the most effective. So they can they start learning their skills in the right way. Early intervention is a wonderful, wonderful program, and people should take advantage of it. So, um, uh, Emma, uh, you 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 touched on this a, a little bit earlier. You alluded to this, but can you talk a little bit about the changes that you've seen in your son since he's been getting uh, early intervention help and sort of how it's influenced your uh, your you and your husband's feelings about uh his his future and his progress moving forward 
yeah, he's a different kid now than he was a year ago, and some of that is just normal developmental uh, progress. But when when he started with Patricia, you know, he had a weak core muscles. She really helped him strengthen his core muscles, and um, she was there, you know, for the first time to help him learn to walk. And uh, we often hear from people that, um, in fact, since the piece ran, people have said, you know, people who live in our building have said, I see your son all the time, and I had no idea that he has a disability. So um, between his foot orthotics and um, his work with Patricia, he um, he walks very well. He walks strongly, and um, he's using his left hand more and more, and he's talking nonstop. Um, we joke, you know, that I'm a talker, and, and, and our son is a talker, too. He um, he loves to talk. He loves to eat. He loves to play, and he's just really come alive since he's been working with these therapists. Did do you feel like he has he has a sense that he has any kind of a disability? I think he's too young to understand that. Um, mm-hmm. But I think one of the things that um, he's learned is he's he's very resilient. Um, he's got confidence from working with his therapist and he has confidence in his new skill sets. And so I think he's very determined and resilient. And those are important characteristics to have because his disability is something that's going to affect him for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. Are you are you in touch with other parents through uh, chat groups and things like that? Yes. In fact, we just had a play date actually at the um, Transit Museum in Brooklyn with another family. Their child had a stroke, and um, it's been really heartwarming to hear other stories, to hear signs of progress. We trade tips on therapies and camps. We do a camp every summer in New Jersey that's um, called Constraint Camp, where you constrain the strong arm and force the child to use the weaker arm. And so we've heard tips from, you know, everything from adaptive equipment you could use on a scooter. Um, it's, and most of all, you know, it's just really nice just to, to feel less alone and to feel like someone else is going through something similar. And, you know, it, it's harder, I think, sometimes for your friends or even family to understand what you're going through because they they sort of just – um, say, oh, well, he seems fine, and, and they don't see all the hard work that goes into his development. A quick break to encourage you to move. Physical activity is associated with a reduced risk of chronic disease, not to mention improved bone health, cognitive function, weight control, and overall quality of life. Simply put, more movement is the gateway to better health. Need some help to get going? Physical therapists are movement experts who use exercise, hands-on care, and patient education to help you meet your goals. You can contact a PT directly for an evaluation. Learn more and find a physical therapist near you at ChoosePT.com. I suppose we should note here that the, the website of the Centers for Disease Control has an early intervention page that offers visitors all sorts of information about eligibility, program specifics, costs, uh, by state and U.S. territory, because it can change depending on where you live. Um, Emma, you're a reporter. You, you, you noted in your New York Times piece that while your son's care under the program in New York has been free, that may not be the case for all families. It, it depends on funding, and it depends on the state in which you live and, and other factors. You also noted that there are uh, racial disparities in terms of participation by children who are deemed eligible for the program. So, so sort of speaking as a reporter as well as a parent, have you discovered any reasons for this disparity that, could, that might be uh, able to be addressed in some way to enable more eligible children to get the care they need? 
I think the biggest challenge is that it takes a lot of time and emotional energy to devote to this, and a lot of parents who are working low-wage jobs or who are working um, difficult hours, um, you know, I can tuck into a conference room at work and spend an hour on the phone with insurance, mm-hmm. or I can take time off work to go to a meeting to get his uh, services approved, and a lot of families can't do that. A lot of neighborhoods uh, don't have access to the same high-quality therapists. A lot of the therapists have Um, really high caseloads. You know, I've heard complaints about how much the state reimburses therapists for their time. And so I think um, the, you know, a lot of, a lot of therapists might not want to work in early intervention because it doesn't pay as well as private services. And um, that, that's just been really heartbreaking to me because I see how much my son benefits from the program and I wish more people had access to it. I've actually heard from two friends since the piece ran saying, I'm going to get my, child evaluated for early intervention. Hmm. Um, They're both concerned about speech delays, and they've both tried to get them evaluated before, and they didn't qualify for services. And they said, um, your piece really reminded me that that I need to advocate for my child, and I need to convince them to get approved for services. And so I think, you know, if, if you hear no once, you might say, well, maybe this is a waste of time and um, it's not going anywhere, but you have to be really persistent and you have to, um, you know, call people and annoy them and email them and follow up and really sort of be an advocate for your child. And a lot of people don't have the time or resources to do that. Mm-hmm. So I guess I'd like to ask now uh, both of you, Emma and, and Patricia, in whichever order you like, to to talk about because because Emma, you had mentioned earlier that uh, that your, your son will always have a disability, even though he's made tremendous progress. Um, so can you talk about sort of where he is now, the challenges he's likely to continue to face, uh, and the ways in which continued therapy can 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 help him moving moving forward? That's one of the great things about um, Patricia and our other therapist as well. They've told us about adults. Uh, who have our son's condition or teenagers and sort of what we can expect for the future because early mm-hmm. on that's the scariest part, right? Sure. You're concerned your child might not walk or talk or, or have these milestones in their life, and so they can sort of tell us what to expect about the future. Um, and it is something that will affect him for the rest of his life. You know, it's it's possible that his left hand will always sort of be what we call a helper hand, meaning it will help him do things, but he won't be as competent with it as he is with his right hand. And mm-hmm. so um, there's other things that can come up over the course of his lifetime that we want to be prepared for. Um, but we expect that he will be in therapy for many years to come and will continue to rely on uh, finding really good therapists to help him. Uh, uh, so, Patricia, can you address some of the things that in therapy that uh, you'll probably be, be helping with as he continues to uh, to grow up? We always start building strength because strength develops stability and stability develops mobility. So uh, we started, you know, developing the core, we were developing the hip and the shoulder muscles to, pro- to provide that, that uh, proximal stability. So we can build on that so to to get him to be functional because that's, that's our, our main goal is to be as functional as possible. So um, now that he's working, you know, uh, we're working on, on balance and coordination and motor planning, which is the, the sequence of movements that he has to do to accomplish whatever task at hand. So uh, let's say if you're going up, up and down the stairs, what's the, what's the sequencing of movements that he has to do so he's safe and he can accomplish what he needs to do? Uh, we're going to teach him how to jump, how to run, um, and, you know, just age-appropriate skills so he can be part of his class, he can be 
you can be you can play in the playground and and not be left out uh, and get them as functional as possible. And uh, Emma, Emma was saying too that you've uh, you've been able to uh, to tell her sort of uh, what to be able to expect over time through the cases of, of people who are older and who uh, had a um, had a prenatal stroke. So you found cases of uh, people who had experienced that, and uh, you were able to uh, to share those experiences with uh, with Emma. Yes, actually, in in the same neighborhood that Emma and her son live, Lauren and I had at least two other cases of a prenatal stroke. So we were able to to put Emma and these other little boys' mothers together to talk about what what she would expect because you know the little boy is a little older, and right. uh, and I think it was a great uh, great experience for Emma to see how this other boy has developed and he is in a regular classroom and he plays with his friends. He still has some disabilities, but he is able to function and, and play and be the regular kid, and that's a that's a great thing. To see for parents when they get this diagnosis, this the scariest thing in the world, you know. Sure. So being able to see the future and that it's not as bad as they could imagine is is really relieving and is a is a really great experience. Well, Emma, it sounds like you and your husband have probably traveled quite a distance emotionally from that from that first wrenching moment to sort of where you are now in terms of uh, in terms of envisioning your son's future. Yeah, and we're very optimistic now, and um, meeting the the little boy in our neighborhood, we met at the park once, and he was zooming around on his scooter, and he's in a soccer league, and it just gave us so much hope for the future, and um, we feel really good about where our son is at right now, and um, part of the reason I wrote the essay was a love letter to Patricia and Lauren and our (laughs) other therapist, Elena, because... They work so hard, and they don't get a lot of glamour or fame uh, out of it, but we really appreciate what they do. Mm-hmm. We, we don't do it for the glamour. <laughs> <laughs> and, and needless to say, you probably don't do it for the pay either. Yeah, well, you know, I, it's, it's so rewarding that, you know, it'd be great if we make a lot more money. But <laughs> really, we, <laughs> we really love what we do, and, uh, you know, we really change people's lives, you know. Yes, um, yes. I, I really do think so because, if you have a kid with disabilities, the whole family suffers, you know. Expectations mm-hmm. are different. Every day is different. So the fact that we, we, we strive to make him as functional as possible is, is, a, is a great thing. It's a gift for them, you know. Mm-hmm. It, right. It's really, it's really rewarding. It's really rewarding seeing how, how life changes. Yes, yes. Emma, you um, as I, as we mentioned earlier, you're you're uh, the uh, in charge of the city hall beat uh, in 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 New York, which is the nation's largest city, and uh, you've also covered the city transit beat. So I think it's probably fair to say, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's probably fair to say that you have some experience dealing with bureaucracies. I feel uniquely <laughs> well positioned to help my son because I'm used to dealing with people who don't want to give me information. <laughs> right, right. Well, well, and can you talk about that a little bit? Do you have any final thoughts to share with listeners about navigating this this healthcare maze and do you have any advice for parents whose babies or young children uh, might need help from this uh, from this bureaucracy that you've uh, unfortunately had to become intimately familiar with? Um, I think it's important to just be persistent and to be cheerful. You know, I'm always nice to people, even when I'm uh, relentlessly, you know, bugging them for weeks right. on end. Um, but I think too, we we sort of view ourselves now as part of the disability community, and we didn't even realize, you know, it's like one in ten Americans have a disability, um, and 
whether, you know, there's a lot of different kinds of disabilities that we view ourselves uh, as part of that community now. The reason I wanted to write the piece was to raise awareness. And so I think it's given me a lot more compassion for people with disabilities. Um, I have been covering the subway beat for several years, and I go to the monthly board meetings where they discuss changes to the subway and the bus system. And almost every month um, people show up in wheelchairs and show up with disabilities and complain about how terrible the transportation network is here in New York City, how they were mm. stranded waiting for an accessoride vehicle, you right. know, snow for an hour. And so um, those stories just mean so much more to me now. And, you know, I rant and rave on Twitter about when the subway <laughs> elevators are down and the subway escalators are down because it's really annoying. And, you know, my son might have trouble with the stairs some days and want to take the elevator because he's tired and I want those elevators to be working for him. So um, mm-hmm. it does sort of make you see the the world in a new light and with more compassion. And um, we're, we're part of the disability community now. Well, and you've seen in, in any number of instances in your, in your work and in your personal life, uh, the, the effects that advocacy can have. Yes, yes. And I think those people showing up every month at the MTA board meetings and demanding better subway service or better bus service, um, I think it makes an impact on the board members who hear their stories, and it makes an impact on the journalists who are covering the meetings. And um, so I do think it's really important. And, and just as a parent, just, you know, don't give up and don't be afraid of being too pushy. Sometimes I joke about how I'm, like, going into my tiger mom phase. <laughs> um, but you have to. You have to do what yeah. you need to do to get your kid what they need. Well, it, it sounds like tiger mom, but try to purr as much as you can while you're doing it. With a smile, yes. <laughs> With a smile, exactly. Well, um, Emma Fitzsimmons, uh, Patricia Porres, uh, thank you so much for joining us on Move Forward Radio. We've really appreciated it. Thanks for having us. Thank so- you so much. Thank you for listening to Move Forward Radio. Insight from our guests is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for individual treatment by a medical professional. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, or find previous episodes at ChoosePT.com, the official consumer information website of the American Physical Therapy Association. Find a physical therapist near you at ChoosePT.com.